Well, keep that passage open in Acts. Uh, we're going to be working through it today. I'm just going to check that this clicker is working, how good it is working. Well, it's lovely to be with you all here uh, this morning, uh, and it's lovely to come check out 430 Church. I've met some of you uh, at 10 a.m. or at men's breakfast, but it's great to be with you here this morning. We've already prayed a beautiful prayer about how God's Word might equip us for every good work, so why don't we get into it? Um, well, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever wanted to be part of a perfect church? I imagine uh, the reading that we've just had for us here from Acts uh, is probably the closest you'll ever see to a perfect church in this life before Jesus' return. Uh, it's an amazing passage. But I hope you see as well that the church has always struggled with the reality of sin, that there's never been a perfect church. In the first part of our passage, in Acts chapter 4, verse 32 to 37, we're going to see the church at its best. And if you've got the uh, handout, you can see the outline there. And then in chapter 5, verses 1 to 11, we're going to see the church at its worst. So let's get into it. Firstly, the church at its best. Uh, Let's read again. Come with me to verse 32. Have your Bibles out. We're going to read verse 32. Now, the large group of those who believed were of one heart and mind, and no one said that any of his possessions was his own, but instead they held everything in common. And the apostles were giving testimony with great power to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was on all of them. Did you notice how this church was described? It was described in verse 32 as a group of people of one heart and mind. They weren't just a group of individuals coming together, but they were united. They weren't fighting over service styles or music preferences, but they were completely united in all that they did. And we see that this unity flowed out into their possessions. They would willingly share their possessions for the good of one another. It didn't, this church just didn't keep, deeply care about one another in thought uh, and then go and do nothing. If you've read the book of James, you might uh, see that type of rebuke that James gives to those who deeply care in thought but never do anything with that which they have. No, this church's unity led them to being sacrificial. They were a sacrificial church. And in verse 34, we see these amazing words that there was not a needy person among them because all those who owned lands or houses sold them. Amazing. People selling land and property that was theirs to care for their uh, Christian brothers or sisters. And I hope you can see that the only way that this type of sacrificial community is formed is through the preaching of Jesus. We can't just become a more sacrificial community by trying harder or just bringing up something out of ourselves. No, we need the preaching of Jesus. And we can see this because actually in Deuteronomy, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 15 verse 4 describes this day that we see before us in Acts. Deuteronomy 15 verse 4 says that there would be no needy person among the Israelites, amongst the people of God. And Deuteronomy is talking about when Israel enters the promised land and how God will bless them so greatly and how they'll be able to share with one another But Israel never actually reached this day, never reached the day where there was no needy person among them. Why? Because without, um, because Israel was too selfish. 
And without Jesus, we too would be too selfish to do something so amazing. The only way you can create this type of community is through the preaching of Jesus. People radically change because Jesus has died for their sins. People radically change because in Jesus, they're assured of eternal life. It's only through seeing God's generosity to us that we can be then be motivated to be generous to others. And I think it's important to note here as well in this passage that individuals still did own individual possessions. Private ownership wasn't outlawed. Personally owning land wasn't wrong. Some people read this part of Acts and think that this is some type of Christian communism and that maybe this is what we need to do. We need to sell everything we have and just completely have shared possessions. But notice that's not exactly what we read. Notice in verse 32 that no one said that any of his possessions was his own. That is, they still own possessions. And then later on, we, when we read of Ananias and Sapphira's death, we'll see in verses five, uh, chapter 5, verse 4, Peter say this. He says, wasn't it yours while you possessed it? That is the land. Wasn't it yours while you possessed it? And after it was sold, wasn't it your, at your disposal? That is, that the land and the money belong to them, And this is important to understand because I think seeing this actually shows the incredible generosity of this church. That no one was forced to sell anything, but rather they saw a brother or sister in need and so they went out of their way to meet that need. And we see a specific example of this in verse 36. We meet Joseph, who's been given the name Barnabas, which also means son of encouragement. And if you're familiar with the Bible, then you might recognize the name Barnabas. Later on in the book of Acts, we'll see Barnabas and Paul go on missionary journeys throughout the uh, ancient world to tell people about Jesus. But this Barnabas goes and sells his field and gives the money to the apostles to distribute for the needs of the church. It's absolutely amazing. It's incredible generosity. There's no 10% rule for Barnabas. He's not just giving a tithe, he's going all in. And I think sometimes us as Christians today get a bit confused about what giving looks like in the Christian life. I think in the Old Testament, God told Israel to give a tithe. That is 10% of their income. And we saw this in the Old Testament reading in Malachi, that God was interrogating his people and he was saying that actually that this tithe was a way of them showing their trust in him. But in the New Testament, we don't read of any command about how much we're to give. Rather, in 2 Corinthians 9 verse 7, we read this. Each person should do as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or out of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. That is, that us as Christians today, we're free to determine how much we give. And I remember chatting to this with a Christian friend a couple of years ago, and I was telling him that I don't think actually the Bible says for us Christians today that there's any rule or command for what we should give. And I could see him getting noticeably a little bit disturbed and a bit worried because he assumed that if we didn't have some type of 10% rule, that Christians would give less. And to be fair, there's some statistics that suggest that that is the truth for some churches, that it's a sad reality. But what I was saying is that Christians are not limited to 10%. 
That we're not to think of giving as some type of tick box exercise, which we just say, tick, yep, I've given 10%, that is my duty. No, rather we are free to be generous. Motivated by God's generosity to us, we want to be generous to others. Motivated that our possessions in this world will rot and decay, we want to use our money for the kingdom of heaven, which will never decay. Motivated that, motivated by the reality of heaven and hell, we want to use our money so that more people will hear about Jesus. Giving in the Christian life is never a tick box exercise. Rather, we're constantly to be thinking, what does generosity look like for me today? And for each of you, that might be different. For me as well, it's different. It depends on your life circumstance. Maybe you're a student. Maybe you have a full-time income job with no kids. Maybe you have a young family. Maybe you're nearing retirement or in retirement. We constantly should be asking, what does generosity look like for me today? And if that's not something you've done recently, then could I encourage you, um, just in the entrance way, uh, where there's some Bibles, there's also a little kind of handout on what uh, giving can look like here at Snack, uh, Snack Church at Bexley North. Um, Phil, one of the, the senior pastor here, describes it as a bit like a Bible study. It's got a bunch of principles and explains to you what giving can look like. So I'd encourage that to you if you haven't recently considered what your giving looks like. However, in all of this, it's important to remember that the only giving that honors God is cheerful giving. God doesn't want begrudging giving. God wants your heart, not your money. And that brings us to our next point, where we see the church at its worst. Come with me to chapter 5, verse 1. But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. However, he kept back part of the proceeds with his wife's knowledge and brought a portion of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the proceeds from the field? Wasn't it yours while you possessed it? And after it was sold, wasn't it at your disposal? Why is it that you have planned this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And when he heard these words, Ananias dropped dead, and a great fear came on all who heard. The young men got up, wrapped his body, carried him out, and buried him. Shocking, isn't it? Ananias and Sapphira, they sell their land. They give some of the money to the apostles but they secretly keep the rest of it for themselves. And because of this, they are struck down dead in an instant by the judgment of God. It's a bit uncomfortable, isn't it? Even some commentators, if you were to read them in this part of the Bible, they'll say, well, I don't know if God's done this. No, they would suggest that maybe it was Peter's words that did this, that this wasn't God. But I hope you can see that this isn't the work of a man. This is struck down dead in an instant. The problem isn't that they've lied to Peter. The problem is they've lied to God. But still, it seems a bit harsh, doesn't it? If you're shocked by this judgment, then we're in the same boat. At first glance, it seems like Ananias and Sapphira are struck down dead by God for not giving enough. But is that really why they were struck down? Is that right? 
At the end of verse 4, we see, no, this is actually the answer. Peter says, you have not lied to men, but to God. And I think just a helpful small side note here, notice that how in verse 3, Peter says you've lied to the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 4, he says you've lied to God. Because Peter knows that to lie to the Holy Spirit is to lie to God. The Holy Spirit isn't a force or a lesser being, but the Holy Spirit is God. But back to the main point, we see that Ananias' sin had nothing to do with how much he gave. Rather, his sin was that he lied about how much he gave. He wanted to look like Barnabas. You remember that? The son of encouragement. Oh, wouldn't that be a nice name? The apostles calling you the son or their daughter of encouragement for how much you have done. Don't you love it when people praise you for being generous? Ananias did. He wanted people to praise him for being so generous, but really, he was just being a hypocrite. Saying one thing, doing another. Ananias' heart wasn't really in it. You remember in chapter 4, verse 32, how the church is described as having one heart and mind. But did you notice how Ananias' heart was described in verse 3? Satan has filled his heart. God wanted Ananias' heart, not his money. But Ananias was trying to impress the church by his giving, and he faced God's judgment. And did you notice how the church responded to Ananias' and Sapphira's death? In verse 6, we see after Ananias' death, a great fear came on all who heard. And then again in verse 11, then a great fear came on the whole church and all who heard these things. You notice that a great fear came on the whole church. And I think it's helpful for us to remember that it, that there is a right fear of God. In our day and age, people don't seem to talk about the fear of God. And sometimes that's for good reasons. We want people to know that if you're trusting in Jesus, that you have no fear of judgment because he has completely paid the price for our sins. And if that is you today, someone who's struggling with that, can I encourage you? Jesus has paid the price for your sins, if you trust in him. However, I think sometimes we ignore the fear of God because we're embarrassed by it. We're embarrassed by topics of sin, judgment, and holiness. And these things which the Bible constantly talks about. However, I hope you see from this passage that there's a right fear of God. That even the church in this day, they considered the reality of God's judgment. That as we consider the reality of God's judgment, we should fear God. If you were to be there in that moment and to see Ananias or Sapphira struck down, you would be foolish to not have some type of fear within you. It should cause us to be cautious and to be wise about how we act. And we're about to wrap up, but I think there are lots of things that can be drawn from this story. But I want I think two things are clear, and I think we should consider them today. Firstly, the seriousness of sin. All sin is serious because it rejects the God who's created us and sustains us. There are no acceptable sins. Uh, If you're someone who's a bit of a book reader, you might know a book called Respectable Sins by Jerry Bridges. I'd encourage you to read it. Uh, And he would encourage this point along that there are no acceptable sins. 
But this is a danger, I think, for anyone who's been a Christian for a long time. And I know it's a real danger for myself because I see God has grown me in various ways. I see that he's helped me to say no to various ungodly desires um, and various sins. But there's still many sins I struggle with. And there's a danger that I stop caring about those sins, that I just think, well, that's just the way I'm going to be until Jesus' return. But the Bible doesn't give us that picture of sin. Maybe it's anger with my family or my workmates. Or maybe it's an envy of what other people have, whether it's their lovely car or a house. There's many other sins I could list, but what is it for you? We need to remember that there are no acceptable sins. That all sin is a wild rejection of God. And therefore, we need to continue to confess these sins, to repent of these sins, and to ask God for help to grow us. And in all of this, we need to put our trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of these sins. That's the first point. We need to see the seriousness of sin, of all sin. But finally, our next point. God wants your heart not your money. There's no amount of giving that you can ever give to make yourself right with God. In fact, there's no good deeds that you could ever do to constantly do over and over that would ever make you right with God. As we've seen throughout Acts, that's not what God requires of us. He requires of us to repent. He calls us to trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. However, when God converts our hearts... He converts our wallets. When God freely gives eternal life through Jesus, then overwhelmed by that message, we freely give so that more people can hear about Jesus. God wants your heart, not your money. But that doesn't mean that God wants less. He wants more than our money. He wants everything about us. That's why Christianity can never be a hobby. It's not just like a sport that you fit into on Sunday. It's a little bit of religion in your life. Christianity can never be a hobby. God requires all of us. God wants everything about us. He wants our heart. And if he truly has your heart, then everything else will follow. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the good news of Jesus, that we have the awesome future of eternal life with you. Help us to be generous with our possessions so that more people might hear of Jesus. Help us to take sin seriously, so that our lives might adorn the gospel. And Lord, help us to see that in all these things, you desire not what we have, because you have everything in this world, but that you desire our hearts. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.